Hello, may I welcome you to episode 43 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight to others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. In this episode, we discover that my guest believes he was born to be in this industry and began his career some 34 years ago. We discuss his challenges, what he would change from his moving past, his high points, what changes he would make to the industry, the advice he would give starting out again, his predictions for the next five years, and what he does outside of the workplace. And as always, we end with a funny moving story. My guest this episode is Angus Russell, General Manager of Britannia Lanes of Somerset and Bristol. Enjoy. Good morning, Angus. How are you this morning? Morning, Colin. I'm doing absolutely fine. Welcome to Moving Matters. Thank you for being a guest. Thank you for having me on. Can you tell everyone about yourself and the length of time in the industry? Well, I worked out the other day that I've been in this industry for 34 years. Being somebody who wasn't born into the industry, I've only actually worked in three companies that whole period. I did two years for Holtz under National Freight Consortium, 15 years for Bishops, and the last 17 years now I've been here at Lanes. And how did you get started in the industry? I applied to an advert in the Times. The advert said, trainee manager required. I brushed past the company name, looked at the fact that it was trainee manager, and I thought to myself, manager? My dad's a manager. I can do that. And then I was brought forward for an interview. Chap that interviewed me, actually two of them that interviewed me at the time. Chap called Jeff Watson and a chap called Andrew Hawkes. Jeff Watson, that name rings a bell. Yes, now runs Dory Bonner with his partner in crime, Gordon Lyle, who was also one of my bosses many years ago when I was at Pitt and Scott. I actually worked out I was born to be in this industry. As a young lad, I spent most of my life as an expat. So I was born in Hong Kong, went from Hong Kong to Singapore, Singapore to Malaysia, back to the UK. I went out to the Middle East then for three years, back to the UK, back out to the Middle East. And then once I came back to the UK, I then ended up starting out in Newcastle, it was, and then worked my way pretty much around the country. By the time I was 32, I'd moved 34 times. Wow. Most of which was just bedsit to bedsit, but others were huge international moves. So yeah, I pretty much was born to be in this industry. I just didn't know it. It's either that or I was trying to keep one step ahead of the police. <laughs> so the advert in the Times? Yeah. Was that for Holtz then? That was for Holtz. They were seeking trainee yeah. managers. and I remember. Some of the lads that came on with me, Ken Tallentire was the manager at Gateshead. Right. Tommy Bell was working the corporate side. These are names that may or may not mean anything to you. This was not long after Holtz was acquired from Freddie Holt. Yeah. There was a chap called Neil Witherspoon. My first day on the job, I was introduced into the office, shown around, told to familiarize myself. And I think this is possibly where my bent for training comes in. I was shown a filing cabinet and said, look through all of those, tell me how many need fire insurance. That was their training course for me. Nobody really had any sort of concept of what they were going to do. 
And then I got put on my first job. And my first job was spent at the bottom of a safe with three guys at the top of it going, it's going to go. And we're going down the stairs. My fond memories are of a chap called Sammy who taught me. When I went out, I was still working with tea chests. We still carried paper with us and we still stopped at the cafe for breakfast and didn't get to the job till 9.30, 10 o'clock, which seemed to be one of the things that used to happen in those days. You wouldn't do that today. Sammy was a proper old school removal man. Sammy had a face that couldn't crack a smile. He looked like he was perpetually chewing a wasp, and you could tell he was ever so pleased with having me to be shown the road. <laughs> the only time I did find out that Sammy did crack a smile was when he talked about his son. Uh, I'd better tell you what Sammy's last name was. Sammy's last name was Beardsley. His son was Peter. Ah, good old Peter Beardsley for Newcastle yeah. Football Club. What I find, though, during the trainings, that's a really useless anecdote to note now. Nobody yeah. knows who Peter Beardsley is in the youngins. <laughs> But no, very good fun, fond memories. So that advert was for a trainee manager. Yeah. And they made you go out in the vans, first of all, to get the experience, or did you choose to do that? No, no, they made us do it. I mean, their good. idea was get an idea behind it. Get yeah. an idea for what the job involves. Yeah. When you actually sit down and analyse stuff like this, there are no specific training programmes in our industry. There's a couple of reasons I believe for that. Most of all, we do anything and everything is what pretty much you have to understand everything. Now, can I pack a van as well as these boys? No. Can I pack as well as these boys? Yes. Can I do it to their speed? God, no. Plus, if I go out on the vans, I work on the basis I've lost. (laughs) (laughs) It's competition. You've got to see what you can still achieve. It's like that whole thing about the swan going across the water, smooth as silk across the top, and underneath you're being torpedoed by (laughs) (laughs) U-boat. You've got to understand all of it, because if you don't, you can't relate to the guys. No, exactly, exactly. And it is amazing what talking to them as people actually engenders and understanding a little bit. Yeah. These guys may not be school-orientated, but by God, they're some of the most intelligent people I know. And stubborn. (laughs) (laughs) But it's done for a reason. Yeah. I mean, I believe that without our operative staff, you get nowhere. And as a young trainee, I was blessed. I had some great foremen working with me as a young manager. I learned really fast to listen to the guys and listen to what they said. You don't necessarily do everything that they recommend, because that's a bit like turkeys voting for Christmas. but. I do find that their knowledge and insight into things and why makes a big difference. And yeah, truly blessed with some fantastic people. I mean, in my side of it, I've done huge corporate relocations. I've done massive commercial relocations, household and international and all sorts of stuff in between. I love doing the commercial side of it, but it's all numbers game there. And it's a different way to the way it used to be. For me, it used to be a good depot had a really good mix of international commercial and domestic and the guys got interest in the end they're over time with commercial stuff at the weekend people have a life now they don't want no definitely and lockdown showed us an awful lot of that 
people got to spend time with the children and the whole yep. adage of working till seven, eight, nine o'clock at night no longer is of any interest. Well and truly gone. I don't think that's a bad thing because we've been whinging and moaning in this industry about the fact we'd love to pay the guys more if we could. And the reality is we've not accepted and not understood what we have. And it's the clients that drive the pay and the clients that understand what things are worth. We've got to talk to the clients and educate them about why it's worth. There's no point in us sitting there wringing our hands, bemoaning our fate because they're going to go and find John down the back road there that's got a transit with three wheels that can move them because everybody does that at one stage. Mm. We've got to actually educate the public. And that's with all of us talking about what we do and how we do things. During the training courses at a certain depot, somebody noted that, oh, yeah, enthusiasm. Angus is full of enthusiasm. I know I'm full of several things, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the truth is, I do believe in this industry. This industry has got some of the greatest characters, both operationally and administratively led. It's got some of the most intelligent people, and not all of them can write or read. And it's got some of the most outlandish true stories you have ever heard in your life. Well, I'm kind of hoping that there'll be some at the end of this podcast. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think which ones are not going to get you an age restriction on the podcast. <laughs> uh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. So you spent two years at Holtz. Yeah. 15 at Bishops. Yeah. Well, wow. I uh, – was working for Gordon Lyle, actually, it was, in Pitt and Scott yeah. at Holtz. And that was been my third posting in two years. I started off in Newcastle, got sent down to Gosport removals for Holtz, then got sent over to Haywards Heath to work for Hilton's, and then got shifted up to Pitt and Scott. Having left Hilton's to go to Pitt and Scott, I was replaced by two answer phones. I thought that was quite impressive. <laughs> It was an engenderment of the technology era to come to think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But I went, to, I went to Bishops, and the sad bit is, I went to Bishops because I thought, well, I might get a head bit forward there because I'm liable to get a branch a bit quicker. And I also heard they had a great Christmas party. <laughs> so I went there, and I was interviewed by Nigel Bishop and a chap called Nathan Heathcliff Core. My interview basically went along the lines of, yeah, the usual suspects, at which point Nathan said, right, well, if you uh, take off now then and uh, we'll be in touch in due course. And Nigel said, nonsense. Have not go stand outside for a couple of minutes. We'll have a chat. <laughs> uh, I ended up working there at Wokingham and I was there for nearly two years, I think. And I got my first branch at Horsham when the manager was arrested for drink driving. Oh, dear. Ah, it happens. Nobody was actually hurt. There is a very funny story that goes with that that I'm definitely not going to repeat on the basis that he knows who he is and he's a lot bigger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so I inherited this branch. And to this day, it's one of my favorite places to have worked. I lived two minutes from the office. I also discovered after the first year and a half that I'd not been home for lunch once in that period living so close you just don't get a chance to get back yeah but i was the youngest person in the office i was i can't remember now i think i must have been 22 23 and i had to tell these people what to do so i learned to shut up and listen i've just realized that bluff 
takes you only so far. And I'd say, listen, and I'd ask an opinion, which threw pretty much everybody around me because they weren't used to being asked opinions. And that developed my understanding for stuff. I worked there for two years, I think it was. And I started to build up a raft of clients commercially. I had a client, which was Thorn EMI at the time, is now Raycal Radar Defense. Mm. I had a chat there, contact there, the FM's guy. And this is a contract I then held whichever branch I went to for the next five years. And he and I got to the point where he would call up and ask for just a number of men to complete a job. And I knew he was right because I taught him what to look at. Right. So that went on for many years. Earned a lot of money and did very well for each other out of those periods. I discovered then that I liked commercial moving because I was right in the hub of it there. Portion was also known as Royal Sunline City. I think the 19 buildings there or thereabouts, roundabout for them. Crazy stuff. And I had a really good time there, but it was an old conventional warehouse, no lift, and we had an attic. And I also discovered storage there was just a case of whether or not the fire brigade were going to come around and do a safety check. No. It was the Wild West, because we'd do things like fill all the aisles with storage. So we had stretchy balls on the warehouse. You'd do everything you could do to maximize your storage there. And then you'd get yourself into a pickle because you then have the job that was right at the end of the aisle that three jobs were in. So you had to put those <laughs> jobs out there. Yeah, that one. And then had to rearrange everything. Containerized storage is much safer and much more. <laughs> <laughs> so after a couple of years, we'd done very well in at Horsham. I got sent down to Brighton on the heels of an erstwhile individual called Philip Bishop, who was Chris Bishop's son. Yep. He'd been running it. Phil was brilliant. Phil was a born salesman. Absolutely stupendous. Administration? Not so much. I'm pretty certain if Phil had smoked, he really would have used the back of a fag packet to work things off of. <laughs> but brilliant and a moneymaker for all that. Again, one of those wacky individuals. I took over from him and then just tried to build and capitalize on it. And that's when I started having really interesting stuff because I do commercial relocations around there. I was responsible for the amalgamation of Brighton and Hove councils. That was nine months worth of work, most of which took place in the middle of Brighton and Hove, actually. There is a joke there if you're from that part of the world. <laughs> <laughs> and it took place at weekends in the middle of the night. So moving in the centre of Brighton, in round the lanes, Friday nights from nine o'clock onwards, pubs next door. What could go wrong? Oh my word. It worked really well, but we tended to find some fancy dressed individuals carrying furniture for us at various no. <laughs> We did that. I did Mott Eubank Priest and a few other companies we worked for then, which was fantastic fun. So I could have anything up to 35 to 40 people going out of the yard of a morning. I only actually had 10 of my own. So this was all sorts, and this is where I went then casual operating. And I was quite freaked then because when I'd been up at Horsham and I'd worked as a trainee at Leatherhead and Guildford and other places, I had got to the basis that, or I found that different areas were completely different for how they ran. Guildford and Leatherhead, if I hadn't been booked two weeks up front, I was dead. 
if I hadn't paid attention to what was happening, there was nothing happening. If I didn't work at it. And so I learned to be concerned and panic if my diary wasn't full with a week to go. Brighton dispelled all of those concerns for me. Regularly, on a Friday, nine o'clock in the morning, I'd look at the diary for the next week and there wouldn't be a single job in. And I'd be pulling my hair out, panicking, talking to my staff. And there you go, don't worry. You mean don't worry, I haven't got a single job in. I'm going to have to cut prices, have a look at everything, see what we're doing. And usually by two o'clock in the afternoon, I was calling around trying to find staff for every day. It was just a very strange place to operate out of. I think that's where I got high blood pressure. (laughs) (laughs) But it was fascinating. From there, I was sent to our offices in Guildford, again, following Phil. And again, more commercial work, Surrey Police, uh, Surrey University. At one point, I'd moved every single building on the campus and various others. From there, I took over our Crawley operation as it was brand new starting. Rumours had it, I was found on a building site looking for a door to nail my name to. (laughs) So I opened a site for Crawley there, which is still there. I'm quite impressed. I then got turned into an area manager. I was one of the few guys that we changed the way they operated profit and loss delivery to the board there. Originally, when I first started, you'd do your accounts, you'd send them off up to head office, they'd wave a magic wand over it, send it back to you, and it bore no resemblance to what you'd done, profit-wise specifically. It was always a lot less somehow. And I thought, I don't understand why this is happening. So between myself, Alistair, Dave Gow, and several others, we actually started pushing for the fact that we should be producing the P&Ls and telling the board what they'd earned because it made far more sense that way. Call it old school, call it whatever it was. Mm. It, was it was just the way it was done in those days. And that came and created a much more certain way of working with things. And it also engendered belief in the managers and gave them the ownership of what they were yeah. doing. I've been a great believer my whole life. I've always treated the money as mine. Always treated the money as mine. And yeah. as a result, I think that's paid off because I've never been a branch manager or a trainee, you know, assistant or whatever it was. I've always been in my own head, for whatever reason, an owner, mm. albeit with a very strict set of rules. Yeah. And I think that's key to actually engendering ownership on behalf of the manager. You're only going to get out what you put in. And the truth behind it is if you don't believe your input is valid in any way, you don't get and you can't create. Simple as that, really. So today, you're at Britannia Lanes. Yes. I think this probably goes into my greatest point in the industry. My greatest point in the industry was convincing my bosses that bishops should have attendance at the BAR conference and I got them to start going along and I went along as one of the representatives because I was very keen to make friendships inside the industry that could actually give us strength. You become ever so insular if you don't talk to everybody. Having done that, I attended the 2003 conference at the Belfry where I met a certain Maria Lane. Now there's trouble, Angus. Oh, like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) <laughs> you know what for the good trouble oh yeah we flirted <laughs> and 
behaved ourselves. We really did behave ourselves and had a great conference. And that was that. Then what happened back in those days, nowadays everybody uses WhatsApp, but we had round robin emails going round with jokes. So there was the joke that was forwarded to 64 people. And I saw Ria's name. And I didn't think anything. Oh, I remember her. She was great fun. May we'd met. This would have been about November. All of a sudden, I had an email come in. Open brackets. Inverted. Hello, bad boy. Remember me? <laughs> Hold on a minute. You said you were good. <laughs> I was. Very much so. It's Ria's story to tell how we first met because it makes me sound terribly big-headed when it gets said. I still think it's hysterical because she basically said out loud something she was saying in her head and I heard her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't you worry. I will be chasing her to be a guest on this podcast very soon. However, we started talking and we finally met each other in the February of the following year. We'd been seeing each other since early 2004 and we were married in 2006. This industry is directly responsible for us meeting. (laughs) So 15 years with bishops, I'd been doing all of that side. And then unfortunately, a rumor went round that Agnes Russell was seeing a certain Mrs. Lane. We were talking about Rhea's sister-in-law, which uh, I started laughing hysterically because I'm sure her husband, Rob, would have been (laughs) (laughs) But... I then finally served notice when I was at Bishop's and said, I'm going to be heading off. I've been asked to join the Lanes. And the rest is history. I've spent my time there with a real focus on training and trying to build things up. Difficult area where we are, but interesting. And my passion really is training. Okay, so can you tell everybody about Britannia Lanes and the services it offers? Now, I know you're obviously a group of three. Because there are three siblings in the company. There are. So there's three different branches, and you all offer a variety of services. So what is it that you guys do? Okay. So Britannia Lanes started back in 1974. In fact, Sylvia Lane was president of the association. She was indeed. The way Sylvia described it is in her presidential speech was that they were the original cowboys. They got left some warehouses. And they didn't really know what to do with them. So they called up Pickford's locally and said, you know, this removal's malarkey. Do they bring the storage to you or do you have to go and pick it up? (laughs) So then engendered a very steep learning curve for them. Sylvia always laughs that Mike would be busy at the weekend working to put up the walls that he'd knocked over during the week when he'd been doing the removals. (laughs) Not quite, I suspect. But the reality is, is they started and were keen to develop. They were the first ones that did quality containerized storage down in the West Country there. They've opened self-storage. We've gone into van hire. We also do shredding, record management, containerized storage, obviously. And then, of course, we do international shipping, commercial moving, domestic moving, part loads. Lanes started, and their philosophy is in trunking. Yeah. So we work on the basis when our staff go away, they go away on a Monday or a Tuesday, and they're away till Thursday or Friday or Saturday. So they go up the road full, and they come back down the road full. Cornwall, Exeter, and Bridgewater all work on the same basis. 
we all work on trying to have that return mode. It is quite interesting because it used to be very viable. People don't sell on so much anymore. Mm. Not the backloads there to be had. There are still some, but it's a lot more finite. And it's interesting how it works. And of course, nowadays, it's become a big push point to keep things local. We work on the basis it does well for our carbon footprint. All of our depots are owned. Everything is in-house that we can do. It gives us more control over it. We tend to buy our vehicles, not lease them, simply because it gives us better options on them. We can spec exactly what we need. It's expensive, but it does work. We've invested very heavily recently and developed our extra depot. And we're currently in the process of opening a self-store down in Falmouth, which is going to be designed to be, as much as possible, unmanned using new technology. So what do we do? Pretty much anything and all of it. And then, of course, I have a major focus on industry training, but not just within the industry. Anybody that has something that's similar to our industry where they need manual handling, things like that. I'm just about to look at doing some training to make myself a forklift trainer. So let's talk about training. Is this training that people can book through you or is it through the BAR or is it both? If I was a removal company, I don't know, in the Midlands and I wanted you to come up and do some training, who do I contact? Uh, You can contact either me or BAR. Training has gone through a real change over the years it's been done my first entry into training started really when i was with bishop's move i kept giving training managers and i started trying to look for the people who had it for want of a better description still very difficult to quantify what it is but you know what it is when you see it and I take people, I try and give them as much information as I could, try and talk to them about different things, try and engender how you should be doing things, what you should be doing. And people would turn up and you just find a spark in them. And it's trying to find that little spark and fan it to life. So most of my early training was training managers. Three of my training managers that I am immensely proud of, Jamie Russell. He worked for me as a driver when I was at Brighton for Bishop's Move. He's currently country manager for Crown Worldwide out in the Far East. We have a chap called James Cook Sanderson who worked with me. He's out in Singapore. He's building up a company called Boxit. This is his second or third company that he's working with. And then, of course, there was Matthew Ford Dunn and his wife. Now, Matthew is probably younger than I am by 10 years, maybe a bit more. and. The son of a bitch is now retired. (laughs) Wow, lucky him. (laughs) Having sold his company. So I'm really quite proud of all three of them. If I had a little hand in them becoming better than they were, fantastic. Even if I just helped them. Matthew Ford Dunn turned up in my office one day and said, you need a job. And I told my boss we had to have him. I said, we have to have him. And he went on to be the quickest ever trainee to manager. A year and a half later, he was running his own branch. I'm knowing nothing about the industry. So I started getting a feel for that and understanding that I liked helping people make the best of themselves. And when I joined Lanes, we had a training school. And we'd actually worked on this basis that we were developing operative training in conjunction with the BAR and what they call the regional training centers in those days. Yeah. 
and they were doing operative training. So I got involved with that. We had trainers and they'd go on and do something else. So we'd lose trainers continuously. Trainings with BAR has always been hit and miss. It goes in rotations over the years. First off, we'd have a central trainer. Then there would be the regional training centres and they were going to produce all this work for the training centres. Then they went back to having a chap going around with a van. Then they went back to regional training centres. What we have now is even better. I've had to go back to school and learn all of this again in a three-day intensive course and make it interactive. What that means is that my trainees now don't get lectured to so much. They get asked a lot of questions. We break it down to why. So the training that we offer is in conjunction with BAR. I'm a great trainer. I'm not so very good at writing books and creating little work pads and things like that with colourful pictures. Comment that you and I used the other day. Somebody else does that for me. <laughs> exactly. But the course content, yes, I get involved with that and I turn it to what I need to do. So the courses will be basic packing courses. There's an actual brochure that you can get from BAR, which I can forward to anybody who wants. And that runs through the gamut of driver CPC courses, which are industry specific. And then, of course, the proper courses that we're talking about, which are things like health and safety, manual handling, booked with a bent on the industry, fragile packing, export packing, specialist packing, pianos, barometers, things like that. Some of the old school methods that are used. Because when you actually speak to the trainees and say, how did you learn what you know now? Every one of them will say, on the vans. Yeah. So they'll say how they've got to do something. They don't know why. One of my little classics is saying, why do you put glasses upright? And we'll show them upright. And then I talk about filling inside them, the whole part and parcel to it. And they'll look at me and they'll go, but yeah, it's easier to do this. And I said, but do you know why they're stronger that way? What happens when you put the pressure on? And I can get a pair of stem glasses and I stand on top of them. This is why they're stronger that way, because they can take the huge weight that comes down through it. When I talk to them about packing a box of fragile, I explain to them that if you're going to drop a box, it doesn't just miraculously drop on the bottom of it. The cushioning just at the bottom there has no benefit whatsoever if you don't cushion up the sides and over the top and do it in the right way. And my test piece for that is I throw a box down the stairs. Literally full of china, glass, in the different levels. I've actually put up some photos on Instagram and on Facebook. But in the last 20 boxes, we've thrown down staircases. And I do mean throw. I've had four plates break. So that is an indictment that they're either overpacking or they're actually listening to what's being said. And it's working. Did you contact your insurer then? <laughs> <laughs> only joking, Angus, only joking. Greg, I'm sorry, I'm pretty certain <laughs> under uninsured losses. <laughs> oh, dear. But it is interesting. It's like the export packing. I've taken that back to old school roots and doing bandaging is probably the best way I can explain it. If you know it, you've seen it before, and we used to use crepe bandage back in the day. And with Fernigard, things have become fast. So people have a tendency to cover it over as a Cuban. They say they throw stuff in the center of it, like duvets and pillows and things. But the reality is, sometimes they do. And if there's not, they just cover around it. And I've done a bit of work on this and thinking about it, and particularly with shipping being what it is at the moment, 
we can't afford lost space. We have got to do it, which means pushing it and stacking it tighter. And if we're stacking it tighter, we haven't got room to have empty voids in it. In addition to that, if you can show somebody how to protect tubular parts, bits where there's long table legs, if you can show them how to do that with having a great void in the center, then you actually have the ability to utilize the space. More to the point, people know what they're handling. Everybody thinks a big cube, amorphous cube is fantastic. Great this end when you know what it is. It's not great at the other end when they don't know what it is. Or at the warehouse it goes to, to be consolidated in this country. So they'll take it and they'll slide it along the ground. And if it's got a long pointy leg, it'll snap. If it's got a beautiful carved foot, it'll have chunks taken out of it. If it's a tabletop slid along the side, it'll now have a nice reamed side to it or big scratch along the top. If you make things what they look like, it actually works. And that's the key to it. I want to try and make it so that there are less damages at the other end. Time will show whether or not it works. I also think we need to make the whole thing more eco-friendly. But teaching those skills to people are what I'm all about. Because when you export wrap something and it looks like what it's supposed to be, the OCD monster in all of us goes, oh, isn't that good? So how do we get more people into training? Because obviously training, you've always got this, oh, but it costs so much money. What is the return on investment? The return on investment is your company is the best way to say it. These guys are the ready face of your company. These guys are who actually deliver your promises. These guys are the sharp end of your stick. Why the hell wouldn't we train them? Doing just enough is fine, but it shouldn't be just. Here's the crux behind all of it. Everybody has to start somewhere. And everybody says, oh, when they're trained, they're so slow. But the reality that goes with it is everybody's slow the first time they do it. Everybody takes time. If they've been shown the skills to think about what they can do, that period of time from being slow to being fast is reduced by at least half and possibly more than that. The actual skills that I teach isn't actually export wrapping. What I teach them is how to look at an object and break things down and think about it. What I'm teaching them is how to understand the areas that they need to wrap and pack. I'm teaching them to think about the object in a different way. I'm thinking about how many times the object is handled. Case in point, the export packing course. I spend so much time telling them how they should do things and what they should do, and it takes them ages to do it. How many times do you think a groupage consignment is handled? I sat down and worked it out once with my trainees, and we said a groupage consignment going from here to Uluru in Australia, minimum times it was going to be handled from collection, we worked out was going to be at least 10 times. Now, an amorphous cube handled 10 times with voids is going to have big rips in it by the time it gets there, potentially. Not all guaranteed, but potentially. An item that's close wrapped should survive better because it'll have little dinks at it that it can bounce on. So that's the critical part. Now, if we even take it to a full container load, going exactly the same way, it'll be wrapped once at the client's house. So that's one handling. 
It's then handled into the container, if you're lucky enough to be able to load it at residence. It then goes to the port. It then goes overseas. It then arrives at the port in Australia. So at that point, it will then be taken to the warehouse where it's unloaded. Aquas decide to have a look at a few bits and pieces, go through things. All of a sudden, we're looking at being handled four times, and that's a sole container. Okay, that puts different context on things. It looks good leaving. The reason we accept it is because we don't see it at the other end. Yeah. So the question is, can you actually do that? The other part it, to all of this is that these are the guys you are trusting your customers with. We are one of the few trades that are invited into the house, sight unseen, to go and look behind wardrobes, open drawers, go into the most personal part of it. I start most of my training courses along the lines of that comment that I've just made to the guys and how much they are a trusted person. And I said, add to that, you look at the point where you're trying to make somebody's day a little bit better. If you can walk away from that, you have this warm feeling inside. That is the truth behind it. That's what we're trying to do. And I also say to them, what do you do? I ask the trainees what they do. And they say, we move furniture. That's the polite ones that say that. But I said, well, you do. Would you like to know the salesman's answer to what you move? And they say, go on then. We move dreams and aspirations. And that's the truth. We move mental histories. We move a timeline. Every single person. Why do we pack instead of the customer or recommend it? We don't suffer from my favorite, oh look, syndrome. It takes people forever to pack their own stuff up because they look and they understand the history piece they're looking at. It may be a small turd-shaped piece of clay that somebody made as a child. It could be a money. It's different for everybody. These guys, who we treat as expendable sometimes, really do deliver everything we stand for. We give them the tools. We give them the facilities. But at the end of the day, facilities and tools don't move people. Our staff do. The training that we give them works into the service they deliver to others. And the crux behind all of that, if you give them the true skills to work with and they understand why, they can explain it to a customer. Often people say they're completely unskilled. I'm sorry, they are not. These guys know physics, chemistry, geography, algebra, chemistry. They do a pretty mean line in interior design <laughs> i kid you not you're so right though you're so right counseling they're particularly good ask your staff next time how many times they've given a customer a cuddle when they decided it was nearly going to break down and weren't arrested for it and pre-covid <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth i mean that's yeah, you're the right. thing the truth yep. is there are only certain other people that give quite as personal a service as we do let's face it and we do do it from our own homes no no, definitely. So everybody needs to invest in their training. Yeah, it seems expensive, but realistically, it's not. I've been back to school three times. I give up my time. Do I make money out of it? Yes, I do. There's no point to doing it, but there's other sections of it where I don't. Training, driver CPC, 
Do you know I wrote the first driver CPC industry specific courses in 2010? No. I actually wrote courses for manual handling. Those days I got away with doing one for fragile and non-fragile packing because I decided that that was part of the loading process and several others. And I was told, no, we need driver courses at the time by the industry. And now the industry realized that if they're going to have to go to school and learn things or listen to things, it might as well be industry specific. It's amazing to see changes going on with it all. Mm. And in every driver CPC course, I have never lost anybody to sleep. We all engage and have fun. So moving on to my standard questions now. What challenges have you had to overcome? Oh, challenges that I had to work with. We had various recessions. When I joined Lanes, 2005, 2006, we opened up our brand new self-store. Opened the doors and the recession hit. Invested in this beautiful extension of the building, 8,000 square feet of self-storage, and the money tax were turned off, but the rates were increased by threefold. Probably one of the things that I'm struggling with at the most is the new low emission zones. I managed to upgrade the whole fleet for Euro 4 and all the stuff that we had at that point 10, 12 years ago. And now, of course, we're having to upgrade the whole fleet again. And it's hurting. Removal companies are mostly small businesses. We all revolve around what we'd call a mum and dad business. That's where our industry base is predominantly. You have the big groups, and they're fantastic. They're very good. But predominantly, we're mum and dad moving outfits. And as a result, it hurts when we have to upgrade on a corporate scale. The difficulties that it faces working forward like that can be horrendous. The direct vision side of it. When it first came out, it looked horrendous and difficult. And of course, when it first came out, everybody retrofitting cameras wanted £2,000 plus, all the sorts of issues. I finally got round to bothering with it last month, because up until then, we haven't had a huge amount of people looking to move towards London, surprisingly. After COVID, everybody was going the opposite way. We finally got it done, and I got it done for less than £1,000. And it took me a day, rather than the six weeks or 10 weeks it was quoting back in those days. So we get there, but I think legislation is probably one of the most difficult things for us to cope up with. It changes constantly, and the drive towards change hurts. We have to change, we have to keep relevant. So if you could change anything from your moving past, what would it be? Honestly, I'm not sure I would. I'm here as a direct result of my moving past. Rhea and I often have these conversations. Oh, but what if we'd met then? And what if that had happened? And what if this had happened? Just out of curiosity. And then we always look at it and say, but if I had to sacrifice what I have now in any way, shape or form, I wouldn't change it. And that's the truth behind it. I think that what you go through builds the character for who you are. I tend to be Mr. Mediator. I want to understand and bring both sides together. I'm not a massive administration person, so I will tend to try and cut to the chase where I can. But I need to understand where everybody's coming from, which I think makes me very good for clients. I understand where they're coming from, particularly have moved a number of times I have in my life. I actually have lived in my house here for the longest time I've ever lived anywhere. <laughs> I have lived in this house for 15 years. The greatest record before that was five. 
Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So, yeah, I don't think I'd change anything because part of it is the skills that I grew up with, and that's helped me apply them in different ways. Cool. So you've already said that your high point of being in the industry was the Belfry Conference. It certainly was. <laughs> Any more? Yeah, let me think. High point in the industry. Being made a directly elected director. And how did that go? Well, I put my name forward and hoped that somebody would say yes. And apparently fewer people said get lost than said yes. And I really enjoyed the process. I got to take part with the board during a period where we dealt with the COVID issue. Mostly the board meets four times a year. Yeah. And they talk about the issues, but predominantly it's being run and understood by the Secretariat with our direction. During COVID, that came down to the board meeting weekly to talk about what was important, what might Mm. help people. And that was a specific example that showed the structure and the quality of BAR and actually Ian Studd's leadership through the Director General, because the amount of information that was able to be put out quickly and efficiently, and the way we were able to meet and talk through Zoom, made a massive difference. Did I have massive input to it? I was there. But the reality is, we understood what we were trying to deal with for our members. That was one of the greatest things. And it was interesting to note that a lot of the other associations and groups and forums had what we had put out reposted on their systems within minutes. So what one thing would you change within the moving industry? I'd like to find a way to make it so that the guys on the operational side of things have been paid better and valued more. I have often believed that we're the only ones that can make that happen by how we talk to our customers about them and how we give the public image of it. I want people to realise quite what our staff are capable of and worth because everybody thinks they can move house. Everyone thinks that they can stack a fan. Everyone thinks they can pack. If we all packed like Amazon did, you'd need an Arctic for a two-bedroom flat. If we stacked like DPD did, you'd have the longest low loaders in your life. The reality is what our guys do is a massive skill. None of their friends can actually do it, despite thinking they can. None of them have the stamina that our guys do. Let's look at new trainees coming into the industry or the guys that come in from the agency. We currently have a record leading two hours before somebody walked off a job. We have had cases where people have turned up, taken one look at what we do and walked straight back out of the yard again. What we do, it's so highly skilled. And if the public recognized that, we would get bigger money for our jobs and we'd be able to pass that on to our guys quicker. Nobody sees removals as a career unless you're brought up in the industry. We go back to me answering that advert. Manager. My dad's a manager. I can do that. 34 years later, I'm still not certain I can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So what advice would you give yourself just starting out in the industry? Listen, understand, and then make a viewpoint. You don't have to listen and do what they say but you've got to incorporate everybody's viewpoint. The more you understand about it and don't just blag, the better your answer becomes. 
the more concise things become and the more you're able to make it so that others understand what you're talking about. That's the key. Listen. And where do you see yourself and the industry in the next five years? Let's start with you. In the next five years, I'd like to have more of a focus on training still. I'd like to think I could maybe be semi-retired, but maybe that's just being too hopeful. I don't think I'd ever want to get out of the industry completely, but I'm starting to be in a position with the staff that we've got round about us, being able to look at the bigger picture. So I'm hoping in five years' time, I can not be as focused on work, but try to focus more on the things that I enjoy, like training. That would be really good. And the industry in the next five years? I think in the next 10 years, that is going to be the biggest sea change that we've got. We've got this huge push for electric at the moment. I personally believe that we will never be an electric industry. I think what we will be more is hydrogen-powered industry. Yeah. Power limitations and the battery weights are issues for us on the electric side of things. So as this huge focus for electric comes along, we're going to find it difficult to push the development of hydrogen. But I think we're going to have to do it because distance moving and things like that are going to affect us. The millennial issue is also going to affect us. We all carry around phones now. Our phones carry our books, our music. So as a result, people who collect things, and I do mean houses and contents as well, are becoming less. But because we love O-Look syndrome, I don't think we'll ever reduce to a point that it doesn't work. Another thing I would hope this industry is going to produce and change is to become more eco-friendly. Hydrogen will be one way for that, but I'm looking forward to paper-based products changing. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off? Uh, what do I do outside of the industry? I enjoy cooking. I love traveling. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also, I'm no longer certified, but I used to be a British Pyrotechnics Association member. I still set off fireworks every New Year's Eve in our village. Spending time with my wife, honestly. Yeah. Rhea had an operation six years ago now. And that, in conjunction with another couple of things that have happened in our lives recently, have made us realize that life's too short not to go and look. Don't put yourself in hock, but by the same time, don't say for a day that's never going to happen. I have a new car now, and I have a new car because I'm getting it while I can get into it, not when I can't get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, I've traveled to French Polynesia. I got a chance to go to Tahiti. Tahiti's a hole, but the next island over, Maria, gorgeous. And it is beautiful. It's a place I'd like to go back to. I love different people. I love different cultures. The further you go, the more you realize we're actually very similar. Oh, definitely. That's what I love. And I find it interesting. I like to learn. My mom taught me that. Bless her soul. My mum taught me that everybody has something to give, even if it's just crap. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. You must have 
one or more to tell, Angus? I might do. <laughs> Surprisingly, there's been very few completely mad stories. Let's try... I was in Brighton, and it was a classic removals office there. You'd come in, and a customer would come to a trade counter. And then you'd have the general office behind that. And we'd have the issue where Brighton was particularly interesting because you'd have a lot of transient migrants. So they'd be like Australians over traveling, wandering around. And this very well-endowed young lady came walking in with her child, toddling along beside her, popped up to the counter and started speaking with one of my office staff about shipping a few boxes back to Australia. Now the child... Let's say three, maybe four. And we're chatting away, and the child butts in as children do. And Sam, who was a young lady working for me that was dealing with this lady, was talking away to the person. At which point the child interjects with milk. That distracted. Now I'm watching all of this from the back of the office, timing away, just listening out to what Sam's saying, getting ready to correct anything that needs doing. At which point the lady in question picks the child up hoists the front of her shirt up and latches the child on. No. Now, I'm not one for worrying about breastfeeding. I tend to find it really disturbing when they uncover both at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) There's also the one, and Alex comes rushing into me and said, there's a chap at the counter. Oh, yes, he wants a job. Give him an application form, I said. He said, you need to see him. Alex, why do I need to see him? Give him an application form, get him to bring it back in. I think I can start on Monday. Now, Angus, you have to see him. Alex, why do I have to see him? I told you. If he can move and got two arms, you've just got to make sure it. Give him the application form. If he can't write it himself, get somebody else to write it for him. Angus, you have to see him. I eventually gave in, got up out of my office. Walked through to see a chap there standing in front of him with a big smile on his face, his hand on the counter, and his hook in front of him that was his other hand. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, did you give the guy a job? No. I worked on the basis he was a danger to others because it had a hook rather than a lifting appendage. Bloody health and safety. Angus, thank you for giving up your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being a a guest on the podcast. Colin, you are most welcome. Thank you very much. Take care. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 43 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice and please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to Angus Russell of Britannia Lanes of Somerset and Bristol for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, Angus. If you would like to know more about Britannia Lanes and the services they provide then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage movingmatterspodcast.co.uk And please... If you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, 
movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me. So until next time, keep moving. <laughs>